Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you need to again, like you know, take care of both the sides, right? You need to give the most relevant recommendation. At the same time, you need to grow, uh, yeah. create the right set of creators. And then, how do you do this? Is is going to be like uh, very interesting. Uh, other ranking which is to be like uh, what percentage of video you will watch, right? Again, there that will be more biased for shorter videos because in shorter videos. If it's a 10 second video, you can easily watch seven seconds, and you are like 70% through it, right? Uh, if you have a long video, users will generally watch more. Uh, so both of these technically don't directly work. So now you know you need to come up with like new ranking events. All right. So hello and welcome everyone to who's ever listening to this particular podcast. Today I have with me Amay Darwatkar. he's a machine learning tech lead manager at meta supporting facebook's video recommendation ranking team working on building and deploying personalization models for billions of users he has also been instrumental in driving a significant increase in user engagement and revenue for the company through his work on news feed and ads ranking machine learning models as an experienced researcher he has co-authored several publications at numerous ai and ml conferences and patents in the field of recommender systems and machine learning He has an undergraduate and graduate degree from National Institute of Technology Tiruchirappalli in India and also from Columbia University. Amay welcome to the show it's nice to have you finally here. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me it's a pleasure to be here. So uh, to learn more about your introduction like can you tell us how did you get into recommendation systems and what was your background before that? Yeah sure. Uh, so I completed my undergraduate uh, degree in electronics and communication engineering from National Institute of Technology Tiruchirappalli in India. And you know at that time uh, most of my uh, background in machine learning was through self learning. I had taken a couple of uh, elective courses uh, in computer vision and you know th- that really amazed me like the, the ability to have computers uh, see like humans do sort of I think that was like really amazing to me. So I continued my work I did an internship uh, at the Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore uh, working on computer vision um, mostly on like scene text recognition at that time which is basically trying to understand uh, texts in the wild for example like on billboards uh, and stuff like that written in different styles formats on different surfaces and so on uh from there i am uh, after graduation i moved to analog devices i worked on uh, computer vision based autonomous driver assistance systems um and this is like you can consider this as like a predecessor to self driving cars where you know we are just trying to understand uh, what's happening around uh, the car and give warnings so that the drivers can act on it um and examples here can be like you know lane detection systems uh, traffic sign recognition or even like if you're too close to another car in front of you like forward collision warning and so on um worked there for a couple of years moved to columbia university for graduate studies where again i focused on computer vision and machine learning um and during that time i interned at facebook in the summer of 2014 uh, working on ads ranking i think that was my very first exposure to a ranking system which works on like you know real world uh, users and on millions of users actually at a time so you know that really uh, was what like got me started i think um, one thing i really like about recommender systems i think it's talked about a little less is that you know the real world impact it has on a lot of users and i mean in terms of just user value and also in terms of like dollar value uh you know the real world impact it has like ads uh, entertainment search e-commerce anything you think of is is a recommender system today 
and you know my uh, i always thought like this this was like you know what drove me uh, a lot um, so you know that um, and i think now people are realizing the value so you know there is i mean computer vision reinforcement learning even nlp large models these days stay in limelight but i think people yeah. are understanding the value that recommender systems machine learning brings to the world now yeah definitely i think uh, recommender systems are more used by uh, end users nowadays more than any other kind of systems right because yep. we have tons of things that needs recommendation or in terms of like ranking and i think starting from netflix to any kind of videos that you see on youtube or any any other platforms because you have an influx of new content uh, being produced every day so it becomes like a game of who can who can get your um, get your attention in the least amount of time which is like a big problem from both the ends like even for users and also for the companies who are hosting these uh, content so yeah, yeah I, I definitely love that yeah I, as in like the transition makes more sense because if you're working at that scale and with the internship experience it gives you a brief uh, trailer into what really stands for you so yeah that's interesting so uh, can you can you tell us more about like um, what did you first of all because you mentioned internship so what was the project that you briefly worked during your internship that built your interest in recommender systems and versus now when you're working as a lead tech lead at uh, facebook so what kind of projects you are currently handling yeah so at that time when i was uh, interning it was more uh, around search ads like we didn't have a product on search ads but it was mostly around like oh if users are searching for something then ads on something related is is you know like should rank well and users should see ads like they are doing some organic searches for example you are organically searching for whatever like baby strollers right so you should be able to uh, see ads uh, that we know that you are interested in baby strollers so using what you are searching for um, in helping you serve like relevant ads i think that was the problem at that time uh now i'm working on video recommendations ranking for the last uh, four years around uh, in facebook and the work there is mostly around like building user personalization models um understanding like user satisfaction what actually user satisfaction means we can go uh, in detail on it like later and then optimizing for it right so to serve the most relevant video recommendations to users um you know it's, it's again like a large scale facebook scale we can go into the scale and stuff like that if that uh, yeah it's interesting yeah. Yeah, definitely. So uh, you mentioned about user satisfaction. Look, so how do how do these metrics really translate into uh, real world when we are building uh, building solutions in terms of let's say even machine learning tools or any kind of technological tools? Like, how do you map a particular metric that has let's say any kind of business value, and how do you map to like an algorithm over here? Yeah, I think uh, traditionally, right, like machine learning systems have been like uh, measured on only like accuracy or recall yeah. or precision and so on. But I think uh, here in video recommendation systems and especially in any like real world system, it's very multi-dimensional. So, for example, you need to really understand what the user wants, right? For example, users may want to like discover new items. Uh, they may want to like you know explore a diverse set of items. They may want like the system to be very adaptive to their changing interests. So basically, yeah. we have need to consider like multiple metrics um, uh, apart from just accuracy. So for example, like how well you are diversifying, how well you are exploring. Like there are metrics around like serendipity, which is like oh, I'm seeing completely unexpected information, which is I would not get by just considering my embedding and the item embedding and so on. So there are like multiple uh, sets of these metrics 
because user satisfaction again is a broad concept it's not only yeah. like oh, getting something right so i think that's uh, where it's like very different as compared to what you see generally in theory um in, in real world systems but i would be curious like how do you how do you record these kind of metrics like because there are only few actions as a user that people would be doing it would be like either let's say opening a particular ad or particular product and then maybe not not proceeding with it or with proceeding with something like a buy or maybe watching the whole thing so how do you how do you quantify these kind of subtle metrics that you can used to a like a would be like evaluate the model and secondly the improve improvisation of these kind of tools so like how how do you how like defining would be i can understand like these kind of user satisfaction but how do you quantify these metrics yeah um again like for example like you know diversity for example if you're trying to measure right you can understand oh what what users have seen in the past or interacted with in the past and you can kind of figure out like oh these are around like these two or three topics right so how do you you know you kind of build based on all the user preference data as well as what data you have on the items for example like items i know like um, you know we have uh, three interests a b c user has seen like and or interacted with 10 items from a you know five items from b 10 items from c you know you can kind of get like a score saying that oh how diverse their experience was in the last session or and these can be either session based or even like time based saying that oh in the last uh, you know one day they have interacted with this in the last uh, one session like they got all these things if they got very similar things in the session that means the session is not diverse um mm-hmm. there are metrics around even coverage right so because all these systems need um, it's it's user experience but it's also like a multi stakeholder a marketplace uh, in the sense mm-hmm. that you have users um, who are trying to get the most relevant content you have creators who are like you know getting more, uh, trying to get more distribution for their content uh, advertisers who are trying to monetize platform who's trying to like gain value by connecting all these uh, together so how do you you know serve all of these for example like coverage right we need to make sure that a lot of the good creators get coverage at the same time users get relevant recommendations so you know there are multiple measurements around like both the sides or around all the stakeholders uh, and of course like there are trade offs between these and you know it's not very simple sometimes to say oh this candidate is definitely better because there may be trade offs between these um uh, system so i think that the complex measurement is a very very big piece in its whole like you know there are like yeah. teams even dedicated to just understand and improve it over time like you start with something simple and you improve it over time that's how generally it works in uh, industrial systems i see yeah that that's very interesting like as in like it's like a min max algorithm kind of a scenario where you are trying to uh you're trying to optimize for all kind of people and all kind of parties because a like you said creators users and like ads revenue who are trying to promote that thing so yeah. it's like the platform sits at the core of these three intersection trying to uh, provide some kind of value to all 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 of its uh, roles but so uh, explain me the difference between let's say when you are working on video recommendations versus let's say the one that you worked previously uh, before joining video recommendations was like news ad and i i would say like this would be much more product centric right like correct me if i'm wrong but are there any differences between working on these two different kind of recommendation systems and what are the differences if if it's the case yeah so i think uh, on video right understanding a video content was a very big piece for example videos are very complex they are multidimensional and how do you extract like meaningful information from this content is 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 key 
So, for yeah. example, you have like a video, for example, of Ronaldo like scoring a goal, right? You have a two-minute video. Maybe he scores a goal somewhere around one minute, 30 seconds, right? And uh, just understanding that key point is also important because users may drop off even before that or some people may just watch that and drop off. And, yeah. and so, like, you know, that that is very multidimensional. Again, like comparing that to, you know, if I'm sitting in my balcony just recording trees swaying outside with the wind, like uh, how that video is different from this video. Again, it's not only about sports versus nature. It's like even more intricate. Um, on product recommendations or like, you know, in general, like on, on ads recommendations, what I found out was most of these products have very like uh, kind of fixed attributes associated with them. And they're very structured information saying that, oh, this is the price of the item. This is the category. And, and you know, advertisers are also incentivized by doing that. But uh, on user recommendations, uh, especially on videos, like now everyone is a creator, right? So uh, having that scale, uh, having that diverse set of content, uh, understanding what's happening within the video, I think that's a very big challenge there. Uh, I see. Yeah. So how do you how do you go about like is it something like event detection or like what kind of tools like you would do in order to detect these kind of events? Because like you said, like there is no way we can technically define if a person has a video of just randomly roaming around in forest versus Ronaldo scoring a goal, which obviously has some kind of uh, relevance in terms of user engagement. So what kind of technologies, like I'm, I'm not sure if you're allowed to say publicly, but like I think what kind of tools you would be using to detect these kind of events, because it would be like a very interesting topic working from a research angle, right? Like detecting the kind of event in general, like because to the video, everything is a motion. So how do you def define these kind of moments from a technical standpoint? Yeah, yeah, I can uh, go over it, you know, and, this, and again, this is not very specific to uh, any one company, like this is generally how large scale, you know, systems or, or these video recommender systems works. Yeah. Um, so generally what they do is like, you know, when you don't have any information about the video, you start with like the prior is a content embedding of some form. So either it is, uh, you know, an average of some of the frames of the video taken at like, you know, equal intervals. Or, or even some any other form, like you can imagine that it's some form of content embedding, either it's like average of the frames or it is like just a video embedding in general. So you start from there and you don't have any uh, data about engagement. But as data starts to come in, you try to like, you know, use that even more because engagement data we've seen is very powerful. Uh, you know, the content data is starting as a, as a prior, but for example, you see like, you know, what is the distribution of like, uh, different duration versus how many people are watching or dropping off. So on YouTube also, for example, you can see on the bar on the lower end, right? You will see that graph. Yeah. So trying to understand that distribution and then optimizing based on that, I think that's what most people do. And there also, for example, um, you know, uh, you can imagine a video can be some form of a function like average or something of the viewers watching it. Yeah. So you know, like, oh, these viewers generally watch like sports videos or, or football videos and so on so this video is about football and then based on their engagement you can kind of move that video in the embedding space effectively so that's generally how uh, you know this engagement data especially at scale it's super powerful uh, so that's yeah. generally how you know folks do it uh, on, on these systems 
yeah it, it's funny that you mentioned the scale thing as in like because because I, i i because i have known a lot of people who work on recommendation systems and one of the biggest problems when you are not working on uh within industry the problem is the data right like because like there are not op- many open source data sets where you can improve a model like for vision we have lots of open source data sets where you can test your model and your algorithm and you can see if it is better than the state of art but that's not the case for recommendation systems because there's literally no data and most of the platforms are monetized or they are they are creating revenue so those data sets are not public so can you explain in much more layman terms like how does the scale play a role is it like does it intimidate you working as a researcher or does it provide you more power or like a more opportunities to build something that is creating more revenue like can you tell us on the both the sides of like how does the scale play a role in building recommendation systems yeah i think uh, like you know scale um, is super important right so for example just to give you a sense of our scale like um, uh, and, and you know most of these large online companies i think should be at similar scale so we have like 2 billion plus daily active users i think uh, it's the latest uh, earnings call that that was announced um large fraction of those watch videos i think almost um, this also was public uh, as of 2021 like around 50% of time spent on facebook is on watching videos so you know it's 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 a huge uh, scale problem and scale also on the user side also on the item side right we have like billions of items in corpus everything is you know all those like non integrity violating items are valid for recommendations like there are yeah. valid candidates and new items are being added every day so every day there are again like millions of content uh, pieces of content created um, at, at this scale like you know it's important like one thing is important for example is very basically like in you know, a model uh, training and serving cost right so for example we are training on like multi days of, of data um, you know if you increase the training cost significantly it have affects like a developer velocity like uh, at least internally everyone will be able to do changes at a little bit more slower if you yeah. increase the training cost so that is important uh, on the internal side on the inference cost um, if you increase it like you know it's costing the company to serve the predictions from this model so training serving cost uh, is important also one other than interesting component here is on like how real time you need to be so you know items are coming in every day you need to really understand quickly what it is about uh, aggregate all those like user engagements uh, understand the content because each content piece the lifespan is short in general like you know you will get most of the engagement within the first few days or or a few hours even depending on depending on the type of content so for example like you know we have these uh, again like giving an example of sports right cricket right we have uh, indian premier league going on there are two matches happening every day right so yeah you you kind of you know one match you show the highlights uh, it may not be relevant like you know the next day right because you have two like three more matches by that time so you know this content like you need to understand it very quickly um, life cycle is short so you know you need to kind of a lot of ranking needs to happen real time Uh, on the user side also as i am watching videos that i am giving in a feed if i watch videos on top the bottom of my feed should adapt to what i have done on top like if i have skipped something or watched something you know you need to adapt your recommendations very quickly so i think that's those are like very big challenges at scale uh, in general i see i see it, 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 it's nice like I'll, i'll put a bookmark to this particular topic as in adapting like 
the recommendation systems adapting to the trends but one of the key problems because because like i said like i have a lot of people working on recommendation systems that i have talked to in the past and one of the biggest problems like let me learn from your perspective is the cold start problem right like let's say you are being assigned to work on a particular product or particular project that needs to have uh, a particular ranking algorithm so you have tons of content and people are new to this so like even the user engagement is not really uh, i would say crisp in terms of understanding because i mean the users are still exploring and there's not relevant content so can you define any or because you are the expert over here like can you define first of all what do we mean by cold start problem and what kind of solutions you have seen because working in the because you have been actively in the research community uh, what kind of solutions that people uh, have been using to tackle this cold start problem in recommendation systems yeah so yeah i think cold start problem is where you don't have much interaction data so that you know you can make recommendations based on that like past uh, interactions are very important in general in recommender systems so we say it's a cold start when we don't have um, those those you know past interaction data so cold start can be on both the sides right user cold start means we don't have much information about the user item cold start is where we don't have you know similarly much item much information about the item to understand it um, so in this case it's very difficult uh, to rank these and you need to bootstrap in it some way so general base of bootstrapping is for example um if you're moving to like a new country right if you're launched in a few countries if you're launching a product or new country we use like cross market recommendations so trying to understand what's happened in one market and trying to get that same thing in another market um other other ways of doing this are like you know see for example you are building video recommendations newly but you already have photos or link recommendations and so on trying to see what is user done on photos and uh, links to kind of move that information and bootstrap uh, those video recommendations in that way uh, also like some other techniques that have been used here is to like incentivize user feedback in some way so that you know users give feedback uh, for example like you know if you are a new user you might have seen when you sign up to some services they will ask you oh, what are the topics you are interested in like a sheet will pop up and that's basically because like that information is used to like bootstrap when you don't know anything about about these users um so generally like you know as i said you start with like content uh, embeddings understanding very basic preferences and then move from there as you get um, engagement from the users and one of the because you say like you will be using these kind of attributes from users that you can collect indirectly or directly over here one of the common myths and i think like people who do not understand how these algorithms work and how these platforms use these algorithms is the fear like right like i mean my data is being used and all those kind of claims that people make so can you debunk this myth myth that like how exactly like do you do you like as a person who is designing these kind of algorithms i'm sure you use kind of anonymization or some kind of tools that can uh, protect the users privacy so can you can you explain like why like what is the part that normally these platforms definitely use in order to make sure that the integrity of these data are being uh, considered rather than just not being like explicitly used and exploited that's like the common uh, trend people tend to receive yeah yeah i think um, you know all the data that is used is like you know uh, taken consent from from the users also like for example like there is a lot of anonymization as a, as a person developing these algorithms generally there is no visibility into 
you know individual metrics so for example you cannot point out saying that you know x percent did or interacted with uh, you know abc uh, because it's generally like you don't know what is x um, you don't know what's abc everything is like you know hashed um, everything is looked at in an aggregate manner in in general so for example like even when you're analyzing experiments it's like oh people in this you know area or like in this countries are engaging a lot with this kind of creator right sort of um, it's not like this person is doing this so i think in general like there is a lot of aggregation of data there is like uh, anonymization hashing all those techniques um, in in how data is used and as well as accessed i see i see and and one of the other parts of your profile that i've looked at is i think you are also not just a researcher but a person who has built these kind of systems and deployed these models and this would be very curious even for me to learn is like i have seen a lot of people like it's relatively i would say a different challenge when we build these kind of algorithms and it's a whole different challenge when you actually deploy these models into production level uh, environment because there are lots of things that can go wrong when you are deploying these models and these uh, like you said like the real time adaptation and all those kind of stuff so can you briefly shed some light on what are the challenges when we deploy these model let's say you have a you have a model that can take input and that can generate output reliably like whatever the case is but when we when it comes to machine learning models that require certain kind of input being preprocessed and the outputs need to be interpreted in a different way so what are the challenges when we deploy these model in real world and it is actively improving the engagement or any kind of metrics that is being deployed on so what are the challenges over here yeah so uh, there are multiple challenges right so one of them for example is uh, interpretability like it's very difficult uh, often to identify like you know errors or you know where the model may be biased and so on and you know we need to do a lot of work to understand like these pockets of um, pockets of places where you know the model is not doing well uh for example which segment of users are hurt the most which segment of users is it like benefiting the most uh, especially as uh, you know you are more mature uh, the models are more mature the opportunities also for improvement further will come in these pockets so understanding that is very important even for like you know building your next uh, roadmap for the future so model interpretability is like one of these things also like you know currency right like between the trade offs as i said like not everything may move in the same direction there may be different trade offs um, there is data drift for example like all our systems uh, models need to be like training recurrently uh, in fashion so either it's like you know daily training or hourly training or like depends on depends on the application but uh, as you know models become less effective or less accurate over time and data drift so you need to be able to adapt to that data so generally you need to like retrain it a lot of work goes on like even monitoring uh, the metrics in real time because if something goes wrong all your metrics will tank and especially for a large system even if it tanks a little bit uh, at absolute value it's like huge right so a lot of work goes on like even uh, monitoring uh, and, and making sure that these are like stable uh, over time i see i see and are there any any things that you have seen specifically from the architecture perspective like i think there are few things that can be specific to a deep learning architecture let's say uh, i mean one of the key things that i can maybe share from my end that i have seen uh, and maybe you can pick up a similar tangent is like i have seen 
one of the models that was deployed by ASU. And because we work closely with Mayo Clinic, there was this model being used um, in real world scenario. And again, these are not as sophisticated as someone from an engineer at Facebook over here, because these are like academic researchers trying to just make sure that these, this is like an end-to-end -end working pipeline. Is um, There was a particular pre-processing tool that machine learning was using when you have an MRI scan being pre-processed, and then it was the input to the model. But there was this one hazy, hazy little, like I think when you create an MRI scan, it creates like if, if the person is moving, it creates like a blurry effect in the in the MRI scan. And when that was being input to the model, the output was blowing up a lot. And we were using the same existing pipeline. Nobody was able to understand what's going on wrong. And it was only like after a certain amount of iterations, we figured out that this particular cohort, because of certain reasons, had people like let's say after, after 100 people, there were five people who had blurry effects and that was causing the whole issue. So these are the kind of things I feel are like lesser known by people because the machine learning model is so sensitive to these kind of inputs that you would not expect. Like if, if a human was analyzing that particular MRI scan, he or she would definitely point out, hey, this is like a bad image, let's not use that. But like to the machine learning model, it still seems like an input. So have you seen these kind of challenges specifically from a production, production environment saying that, oh, we need to make sure that the model is able to handle these kind of inputs too, because then the model, like the pipeline, fails in itself. Yeah, I think uh, you know there are yeah there are like similar issues, and uh, again, like it goes back to more about like you know finding those pockets. Sometimes it is found out after the issue happens, like and as you said, right? Sometimes after the issue happens, we try to debug uh, you know on this data or or on this segment. Why does this happen? Uh, sometimes it is uh, you even catch it during the training or the evaluation phase. So we kind of generally how the systems work is you you know train you have a time split. So for example, you train till a particular time, and then you evaluate on the future time and see how how this model would have done. Um, you know due to like vanishing gradients. I think these all were problems that uh, occur, especially in the beginning stages as you train these models and move to these bigger models, right? So vanishing gradients, for example. Or, or something, uh, you know, that causes like uh, the model to return like a, not a number, right? For example, somewhere in the middle layers that could actually mm -hmm. screw up your final like prediction totally. So, you know, just kind of understanding these different layers, um, understanding outputs in different cases, uh, evaluating. So we have like very strong evaluations. We try to look into like different buckets. Overall metric is a good one and it's a starting point, but we also try to do like more finer grained evaluations to make sure like, you know, initially there is uh, no problem, but of course like 100% problems couldn't be caught. Um, sometimes they're caught after the fact, but then we try to, you know, incorporate those learnings to kind of again change these fine grained evaluations to, oh, next time we should also look into this, right? So that's like a learning that we get. Yeah, that makes sense. And one of the key things that you just mentioned and also previously mentioned is the idea of like, first of all, is uh, extracting these kind of subtle metrics that you can use to uh, optimize the end goal that you are trying to achieve with these kind of scenarios. But I feel there would be definitely an optimal set of metrics that you can use to optimize the uh, model, right? Because I mean, it's a common, commonly known fact that if you have, let's say for any kind of vision model, just a computer vision model, if you have, let's say, uh, five loss functions, the model will never converge because you are just trying to uh, achieve an optimal or maybe like an impossible task that the model is not able to learn that minima, like a global minima into the model. 
so have have you come across because like you said like there would be n number of uh, metrics that you can come up to optimize a platform but the machine learning model is not simply able to learn so have you done this trade off where you are trying to find the most optimal set of metrics and then you say okay let just let let let, let me use this algorithm and just try to optimize these metrics and then we can see what the results look like yeah so generally uh, you know the way it works is like yeah, we have some kind of key metrics and we try to optimize for those and there are like um, other conditions on the other metrics so for example if it says oh this metric um, you know for every x percentage improvement in one metric you can only regress the other metric by a maximum of y or something like wow. that right some kind of trade offs between those is then how you manage off so for example like um, you know if just a very simple case in terms of very simple metrics right for example your accuracy is improving or you make a huge model your accuracy is much better now but obviously you will have serving costs for it but what we can say is like oh you know because the accuracy has improved so much and uh, you know this is what we are gaining this much cost is acceptable um, but if the cost goes beyond this we may need to like you know come up with some alternate techniques or some uh, some improvement so that's generally how it's done like it's a trade off between like uh, there is like a currency i mean i think this needs definitely needs more work and we are not like uh, you know on uh, we never think of it when you do academic work right because yeah. uh, you know those are not real problems but i think these are like real problems happening and sometimes also costing dollar like dollar value right high dollar value so i think yeah. uh, yes a lot of work needs to be done in like you know establishing what are these exchange trade offs between different things and how do you do it more effectively yeah i think that that relates to the phrase very accurately right like big with big power comes great uh, sorry i think what's the I think with big with great power comes great responsibility. So it's like yeah. yes, the scale brings a lot of good things about improving these algorithms. But at the end, it has to it has to reflect in certain kind of revenue value. But yeah. let me let me tie this thing to one of the things that you said is interpretability, right? Which is very interesting to me because. Um, if in terms of vision we have seen these kind of approaches like let's say using grad cam and those kind of approaches and this is again like a very simplistic academic approach to understanding what interpretability is so we know what the model is looking at how does this uh, look when we are trying to debug a recommendation algorithm like do you use some kind of manual interpretation techniques to see what's going on within the model where you are like using perturbations like like what if i do this and what if i do that and then using that difference to understand what are the algorithms doing or have you come across any kind of sophisticated ways to interpret or inter- introspect an algorithm's working yeah i think uh, interpretability in this case is more of like you know just trying to understand like oh you have for example you get like um, you know if you're optimizing for like for example logistic uh, logistic loss right so you may you may have like whatever normalized cross entropy for example um, yeah. and try to find those buckets like try to see oh, what are the best examples what are the worst examples and then try to see why it is good why it is bad um similarly like you know different pockets right for example if you are trying to find on a particular segment of users you can try to get that segment and see okay how is my model doing on this segment versus mm-hmm. that segment um and then you can also understand like you know what are the features that are playing in like what are the most important features that are using and that are being used to predict um you know to predict values for this particular segment versus that segment so that way you can understand like you know oh these features are more useful in here versus there 
this is what the model is doing here versus there. And, and then again, that opens up opportunities, right? For example, if you see gaps, um, you know, one good way, like in general ad systems is checking calibration. Uh, and calibration means what is your sum of, like what's the sum of the predicted uh, value uh, divided by what is actually observed value. Um, and this is important because like, you know, calibration defines how much, uh, like, you know, you charge advertisers. Like if you are under calibrated, if you're charging advertisers less and you're losing money, if you yeah. are over calibrated, you're charging advertisers more and then, you know, it's likely they will not come to your platform because it's costing them more, right? So it's a very subtle balance. And then understanding like, you know, which segment is your model over calibrated, under calibrated on, that will also like, you know, help you build better features so that you can fix that miscalibration um, in those segments. So model interpretability is more in like, you know, terms of like, oh, what kind of segments, um, uh, you know, you're doing bad on versus good on and what features are used and then developing more on that uh, to improve the situation. Hmm. That's very interesting. I mean, yeah, now that we like now that we are chatting on this, like it feels like a very moving target, like like there is that it's very hard to chase the optimal uh, set of uh, best case scenario because most of the models when we work with like a simplistic vision or language model, like we can see, okay, there is that there are two things I can see my solution approaching or converging to a solution. But in this one, it feels like there are lots of parties involved and we are trying to optimize it for a lot, lot of um, uh, variables. And one of the key things that I've seen for most of the social media channels, and feel free to take this like to a very general perspective, is the kind of uh, contents that are being produced nowadays varies a lot. So I think, let's say for YouTube, uh, there was a scenario where people were uploading long, short, long form of videos. You have 10 minutes, 15 minutes, or maybe someone like me who is uploading like maybe one hour of content over here, and then they are using these algorithms to find these metrics. Versus now, there is a trend of so, submitting a videos of like less than a minute like you know, instagram facebook and a lot, lot of other platforms do that so does this change like working as a researcher or working as a technical person who is trying to now again getting these kind of metrics because now you have like a very short amount of video high amount of amount of engagement or even bad engagement how do you like does this change the design of experiments algorithms and uh, pushing it to production yeah. yeah, I think this um, affects a lot, right? For example, um, like, you know, you have situations where you have long form as well as short form videos. And many of these platforms today are serving both because that's the need. Um, so, for example, here on ranking events, um, you know, you may have to develop new ranking events. For example, uh, if you had a ranking event just predicting, oh, if, uh, you know, how much the user will watch, right? Uh, if you have a long video, user will generally watch more if you have, than if you have a short video. Uh, other ranking which used to be like, oh, what percentage of video you will watch, right? Again, there that will be more biased for shorter videos because in shorter videos, if it's a 10 second video, you can easily watch seven seconds and you are like 70% through it, right? So yeah. both of these technically don't directly work. So now, you know, you need to come up with like new ranking events that will effectively rank both these um, uh, videos together. Like, and the way to do it is, I mean, one of the way that I think was published recently was normalizing the engagement between like different duration buckets um, and using that to rank these like heterogeneous uh, length content. So that is, um, you know, coming up with these new events is one of the part. Another one is also understanding context. And this is important because for example, like imagine I'm sitting outside uh, my dentist's office 
um, just before my appointment, I'm scrolling through, right? And that time I really want to watch really short videos versus yeah. if I'm just sitting at in my couch in the evening, I am open to watching like, you know, long movies, right? So time of the day, location, uh, even scroll speed, I think on, on mobile devices, right? If I'm scrolling really fast, probably it means I have less time. Uh, I want to watch something very short versus, oh, if I'm scrolling slowly, um, network speed, like all this is like context, right? So if, if I'm on a good network speed, maybe my long video will buffer and I can watch it. Um, but if my network speed is maybe slow, I'm more you know likely to watch shorter videos. Um, also, like on, on this part, right, another, I, I think another very interesting part is um, with shorter videos, generally, like the engagement has become passive. That means users are not explicitly like, you know, leaving a lot of, uh, I, I mean, this is just a hypothesis, I feel. Uh, users are probably not leaving uh, a lot of like, you know, explicit engagement, like you're not, not liking, commenting the videos. You want to scroll, yeah. scroll, scroll, watch it very fast. So in this, uh, in this world, right, you know, and again, like comes back to the point of understanding the satisfaction, right? You need to understand satisfaction from implicit signals a lot more. Um, yeah. And I think in this mixed world, it's like, going to be very interesting how that is done with long versus short videos yeah that was actually my basically intention for this particular question because i i, I feel like because as a, as a user i try to also understand how these kind of things can really help the platform people to understand and previously it was better like you you see a video let's say you have uh, like a particular time set like say 10 minutes if the person is seeing it for two minutes it clearly indicates something like a very explicit signal but nowadays like if, if the reels or any kind of videos are like less than a minute like even the worst case for me to learn like what the video is doing is like less than a minute so it's very very like you said uh, because people won't be in that particular particular like 100 percent focus when they are using these platforms so it's very hard to and it, it feels very interesting like you said like the scroll speed and everything so it feels like every every particular action that you are doing while on you are on these platforms is being used as a metric which which is very interesting and yeah it's it's a it's a blow up of content nowadays so it's like more important than ever to define good recommendation systems yep. so, yeah yeah, yeah, for sure. And you need to, again, like, you know, take care of both the sides, right? You need to give the most relevant recommendations. At the same time, you need to grow, uh, yeah. create the right set of creators. And then how do you do this? It's, it's going to be, like, uh, very interesting. And and this begs me the question. So, like, we have, uh, yeah, I think we have talked a lot about, I think, metrics, right? Like, so it, it feels like an impossible task to, first of all, define. Like you said, like, it dif differs a lot of times. We have talked about challenges like trends, adapting to trends, adapting to different kind of contents, adapting to different time durations of contents, and then optimizing it from different parties. So let me learn and maybe get a bird's view angle of your role. So you are working as a tech lead at uh, Meta or maybe Facebook over here. So what does this particular role entail first of all like what kind of things that you do uh when you when like what what does the like a day routine like look look for a tech lead at software uh software engineer at facebook let's say yeah so uh, i think there are you know various uh aspects uh, to the role like one um, is on tech leadership so which is around like you know setting the right goals for the team um, defining the roadmap on like, you know, in the technical sense, like what we'll be working on, what we should prioritize um, uh, over others. And that is like, you know, by understanding what is the potential impact of the work versus like how much effort uh, it needs. Um, then coming from there to like project management, which is like, you know, managing the project planning, 
prioritization our goal is to deliver on time and, and a high quality product right so how do we do that more effectively at the same time having opportunities for people whom we work with to grow in, in their careers right so kind of now we have oh these are the projects who would be the best people uh, and it's very like you know uh, bottoms up uh, in, in most of these companies so you know people get to choose what they really want to work on um, and uh, apart from so this is more on like you know tech leadership project management apart from this it's more of like strategic planning which is like figuring out oh what is the long-term vision of the work um, understand different stakeholders right we have uh, external stakeholders, which is like users, creators, all these, uh, uh, all these stakeholders, as well as we have internal stakeholders who are like maybe you know data scientists or product managers, how they are thinking of it, aligning the vision, and then building uh, a good solid tech roadmap uh, yeah. to kind of you know cater to all of these. I think that's mainly like a high level view of, of the role. I see, I see, and I can I can hear a lot of things that you just mentioned that. I would say is not a part of uh, any software engineers undergrad or grad degree uh, requirements, right? Like you, you don't under, like you don't learn the skills of uh, talking to clients or talking to different sets of uh, users for these particular platform. So, can you tell more about like how did you particularly build this um, uh, expertise for? taking the leadership on these kind of projects because there is a lot of things that you learned apart from just being a good programmer, good researcher, or good person who understands uh, these algorithms or maybe uh, any kind of tools that a developer uses. So what was the transition? Like how did you over the year, uh, over the years transition to a role from just being a software engineer who takes sprints or any kind of projects to now, now taking leadership, uh, taking, taking the project from scratch to something that's tangible? Yeah, I think, um, you know, over time, as you work on projects, as you understand the whole landscape, uh, you can work on like, you know, setting the technical direction, right? Like, for example, you can start at your project level. So when you're working on a project, oh, you did this, 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 you try to find out what are the opportunities to improve or what we could do next uh, effectively, right? So that is basically setting uh, technical direction at the project level. Um, once you understand the whole uh, landscape or the whole, you know, like the mission and the work of the team, you could do this at a broader uh, team level. At the same time, uh, you can focus on like, you know, how, how we build like leadership skills, right? So I you know, was the one who was like, you know, trying to resolve conflicts, I mean, technical conflicts, um, because people, uh, if you work with strong people, strong people have strong opinions, right? And and there could be differing opinions. So yeah. how do we resolve conflicts? How do we ensure, uh, you know, good communication? That means both topward communication, which is trying to highlight the work of our team, uh, and downward communication also, like, you know, trying to get uh, from all these stakeholders trying to see, okay, where their priorities lie, how we can kind of improve them. So communication on both sides, um, making sure uh, as you grow senior, you will have opportunities to coach and mentor other people uh, on the team. So, you know, trying to uh, do that. I did a lot of that, um, uh, you know, influencing, even other influencing these cross-functional folks um, and helping build the vision, right? And, and then that you could like, do it through a lot of the technical parts of it. You can learn through like, you know, what others are doing in the industry through like different events, papers, all these things. And all these strategic as well as the leadership skills you can build uh, through the team. 
and one thing you can do is like you know I, I got a lot of support from a lot of mentors so like you know seek mentors is what i would advise um, uh, in general i see and do you see any of the red flags that you normally see people who fail to understand these kind of leaderships as in like like a certain set of skills that you would recommend anyone to learn in the early in the career in order if they want to transition to these kind of leaders i mean you didn't mention few of the things like what are yeah. the to do's things but do you feel any kind of red flags that you see in people who who you would try to say okay avoid this particular thing if you want to transition to a leadership role later in your career yeah i think uh, a couple of things that not particularly red flags but you know what i would suggest is like take ownership of problems and like you know go deeper i would suggest especially like early in your career you should make sure that you go deeper uh, into machine learning problems like try to be a end to end machine learning engineer what i mean by that is like if you are kind of you know owning only the uh, model building yeah try to see like you know how you can build the pipeline how you can improve the pipeline for training data for example uh, how can you do like you know effective evaluation how can you review your candidate with other folks um, and, and you know make the launch happen right so I, i think you should like you know go beyond your immediate scope to be a more of a end to end ml engineer this will really help you understand of what are the challenges that are faced by the team and that's how you can build like um, another advice i give uh, folks is like you know uh try to focus on work which has higher impact even if it would mean like a little bit higher effort so i feel like sometimes people try to go more uh, on the quantity side you know and and buy somewhat oh i do a little bit mediocre work but i will do a lot of lot of these things and it will be fine but i think generally if you do fewer things better uh, deeper um, those generally help a lot more and and try to think on a team perspective right i think the the natural way to grow is the team should automatically start seeing you as a leader uh, and, and the way to do it is like try to like you know pull the team up um, try to you know empower the team to be successful um, even outside your immediate like uh, scope or project at that time so i think these are like general advices i give uh, folks i work with yeah no definitely that de- definitely makes sense and i can see that in different domains itself you saying it from an industry perspective i have also seen this from academic perspective where the people who are your mentors they would like to see these kind of uh, ownership like i mean there's no other word for that but like own taking ownership like that means taking like mentoring people and making sure the project progresses through your particular vision because everyone has their own uh, sets of uh, skills i would say and set of exposure so let's say if what i bring to the table is different to the other person that's like a valuable skill that you can add and if you can provide like a different diverse perspective to taking this project forward that really helps so just being like a person who take takes tasks and completes them that's not more that's not more than enough nowadays so it's yeah. like ha- having that particular extra opinion sometimes helps and like you said like uh, people who are more experts they have their opinions and that's for good right it brings kind of a diverse perspective to bringing something new to the table yeah. so yeah and one of the key things like as we talk about candidates is also from understanding from like cracking these kind of job interviews because like you said like if you want to work at higher impact or higher uh, deliverable projects like one of the key things is to maybe be in the right place and being in the right place has a lot of competition nowadays so 
what according to you is like because you have been on the both sides because now like you are a senior software engineer so i'm sure you might be in the process of like hiring excellent candidates for your teams and making sure what what really what really you would be looking for so can you can you tell things from both the perspective because at some point i believe you would also have been in the same pool of like applying to 100 companies and getting it maybe let's just like one call back and those kind of scenarios versus now you understand what are the what are the pitfalls or maybe like a warning sign that you see in a uh, candidate so in in like to rephrase the question what do you think first of all makes a good interview candidate where uh, you would see oh i really like this person i might i might would be interested getting this person on my team what does what does that uh, look like yeah so generally uh, i mean all these uh, machine learning companies evaluate the candidates based on like you know what they feel uh, the candidate can contribute to ml improvements uh, at the company right so i think one of the main aspect here is on machine learning understanding so imagine that you know i give you a project um, can you really understand the problem and my solution uh, can you like for example propose different variants uh, to the solution and explain like trade offs right so oh, what is the pros and cons of your solution versus my solution ask questions uh, like you know i think one important part is like framing the product goal as, as a machine learning problem uh, and you know uh, figuring from there like you know what you can use as training data for example you have uh, you know a ride sharing company right they want to go into make, being a food delivery company right how do you bootstrap uh, restaurant recommendations for this company uh, what kind of data you will use can you use like some ride sharing data and you know just to bootstrap for example like this is again the the thing that we talked about in the past of um, you know yeah. bootstrapping right recommendations uh, can can uh, you know candidates interview candidates propose like good baselines uh, evaluate what kind of metrics they will use discuss all these things and and we generally want candidates to go into details right not just like hand wavy stuff so for example if you ask oh what features will be will you use right and if everyone almost every problem needs a user demographics features right so if you just say oh we'll use user demographic features yes but that's there for any other problem right what's the special uh, what other things will you do specific to this problem um uh, you know in the similar flavor like can you criticize uh, like various approaches can you figure out like model is biased or you know how would you like figure out overfitting um, what objective yeah. function metrics you will use how you will debug all these things like become important so like really understanding machine learning especially related to like any problem or project you are given uh, end to end uh, and going into specifics i think that's uh, that's key yeah i think so i think the focus should be on critical thinking of these kind of technologies so it's just not enough if you just know how the algorithm works yeah. or how people have been using it but let's say if i give you a scenario where you can adapt to this particular scenarios so like i mean yeah i i really like the question where you um, it's i mean for people who might be listening this would be like a very tentative thing to maybe like a mock test to work on is like how do you bootstrap like you said like the right right sharer uh, algorithm and uh, i can relate to like most of the interviews that i have been through for my internships and they typically ask like a very open ended question but most yeah. of them most of the times they are not looking for a solution they are just trying to understand has the person really learned like like let's say even if you are using uh, association rule mining algorithm that's like a very simple way 
who understand user preferences, but like, how do you apply this one to uh, a problem that I have posed on you? And what kind of metrics? I believe like uh, one of the very fantastic uh, interviews that I have had was where the person asked me, what exactly can we get from specificity and uh, sensitivity of a model? Mm -hmm. And I was really interested. Like I got got the internship after that, but like I was very fascinated by just understanding those two metrics and how much importance that particular metric has when you're dealing with uh, uh, medical scenarios where you're applying a model and the goal is to do a certain set of tasks because a lot of times doctors would be interested in understanding what are the what are the scenarios where the model is classifying this negative patient as a positive versus a positive as a positive and then again the positive as negative so I, I was really fascinated and that, that that's when I learned like I, I went back after the interview and read a lot of more things like because it's one of the simplest metric right like there's not much to understand it's yep. just a fraction of uh, predictions over total values but uh, understanding the key of like where exactly we can use this and what what particular things you can take back because if the specificity, the specificity of the model is very low and sensitivity is high, what does that mean? How do yeah. you go back and improve the algorithm versus the vice versa of those scenarios? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Now you have, you know, all these off-the-shelf tools, right, that, uh, you know, folks can use to directly build the models. But really understanding, uh, you know, why this model is better over any other or why this metric is better over any other. I think that is what uh, is what we, people are looking into really uh, and, and those thinking skills. Yeah, and and that really also marks the problem. Like if if you are just a person who can just import them, because like you said, it's it's easier than ever to build a model. I can just give you a data set and PyTorch and lots of other tools have made some very fantastic uh, plugin tools where you just do this and it produces certain results. Yeah. But I think if like a way to understand if the person has actually spent working on these models is to ask these questions or maybe like what we say, like reading in between the lines. So I normally use like reading in between the lines of codes, right? Like because if only if you have implemented things from scratch you ask these questions and you can answer these yep. and, and do you have any other further insights like wh- what do what does like most of the people like this is one of the questions that i i asked get asked a lot is like there is a lot of structure for software engineering interviews so you know like there are lots of websites that provide mock interviews and mock set of questions that have been passed asked in the past and they can get an understanding like what what kind of uh, roles are asks what kind of questions but it still remains like a very big question mark when it comes to machine learning interviews because like you said um people are just trying to ask very open-ended questions. Is that the bottom line that people should be aware of when we are applying for machine learning interviews? Like if if you want to hire a machine learning engineer, what kind of things that you would be ideally looking for apart from just open-ended knowledge of these uh, machine learning things? Yeah, yeah. I think generally like you know, uh, a very base case is uh, algorithms and data structure for most of these um, companies. And that's because we expect like machine learning engineers to be having the skills of a very like baseline software engineer at least so that you know they can contribute sometimes it's not only about like you know building um, machine learning models sometimes like you know you should know how to deploy them and all these things right so that needs uh, those skills so that is baseline then uh, generally it's like a machine learning design interview uh, which again like you know tries to I think this is what we discussed was more of the design interview where we try to figure out oh, is, does the does the candidate have a good product sense and understand how ML fits in. Like, you know, we have these complex systems, right? And for example, newsfeed, um, you have multiple tasks, you're trying to combine uh, 
these multiple tasks tasks is in like the conversions right multiple types of conversions uh, and there are many product aspects too right for example like of if a user updates uh, a story right or or you know there are seen stories unseen stories how would you handle all these um, kind of proactively thinking uh, you know connecting this product sense to a ml uh, problem uh, i think helps a lot uh, for senior candidates we try to look into like you know problem exploration are they able to explore the problem well are they able to solve uh, you know uh, solve it using like you know come up with the right metrics like non trivial uh, business goals and formulate them as like ml uh, you know solutions and with ml metrics right uh, how do they debug deploy monitor the systems um, and details on like you know features architectures i think that is uh, anyway needed so this is like machine learning design mm-hmm. uh, apart from that there is like a behavioral interview which is mostly trying to understand like what is the motivations uh, of of the candidate how do they handle uh, various types of situations what kind of scope have they worked on in the past like you know what kind of experience they have so i think this is uh, at a high level like you know these three types uh, i i think of interviews are uh, are there for any machine learning engineer makes sense yeah yeah that that sounds about right even from my experience like yeah i mean for most of i think there are these three three broad categories for most of these roles one is software engineer which is typically related to work of like pro- pro- production level where you are trying to build a solution based on technological platforms that whatever the company is working on then pushing it to production where it it serves a particular purpose then i think there are these uh, in between domains data science machine learning engineers who are trying to understand a particular machine learning model but the goal is to just take that one into the existing software uh, cycle and then push it to production which again serves a particular pur- purpose and i think then there is this research scientist interviews who are trying to understand like if there is a unknown problem how do we map it to existing set of algorithms maybe innovate maybe not innovate and use uh, of the shelf machine learning algorithms and then again this goes back to like the whole cycle of machine learning engineers and then software engineers who are trying to build a product out of it so yeah i think it's 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 now getting a lot of lot better because now we see a lot of companies hiring these uh f- hiring for these roles and it becomes it becomes much more generalized yep. so yeah yeah and uh, one of the key things that i also tend to ask most of the guests is because because a lot of people watching this particular podcast would be people who are interested in ai and they are trying to understand because ai from the outside perspective seems very lucrative to anyone right like if you ask anyone like yes i mean anyone wants to work in ai because it's the big trend nowadays but uh, as a person who is like in her in his or her bachelor's or master's degree one of the key things is to deciding what is my interest right because vision it also sounds very interesting reinforcement learning we see alpha go and lot of other solutions uh, language models chat gpt is like now a big big thing stealing the show so there are lots and lots of domains even recommendation algorithms most of the big companies are using them in some or the other way so first of all like can you share your experience i mean you did ex- uh, you did explain more about like how did you get into recommendation systems but what kind of tips you would give to someone trying to break their career into these uh, tools like everything sounds very interesting but where do i get started how do i get started and how do i build a career that can sustain for a long amount of time yeah uh what i generally recommend folks is like you know get a very basic understanding of machine learning like you know i think uh, especially if you know folks are trying to go from like software engineer traditional role to machine learning role i would suggest like 
brush up you know basic properties statistics uh, linear algebra because after working for a lot of years in a traditional world sometimes you lose touch uh, on all of these um, so you know yeah. i think basic having basic uh, ml knowledge is important most of the uh, knowledge between these is transferable so for example you know we have transformer architectures they are used they started in one domain but now they are used across uh, domains uh, most of the solutions are you know so if you know one of them also well it's very easy to move to any other application so i would suggest like you know get a very basic understanding of ml um, and if you're in college or even if you're like a software engineer i would suggest like now as we discussed it it's very easy to develop a lot of like experiences right so if you're looking for applied kind of domain like try to build some experience uh, either it can be an app or or uh, like a, uh, any other kind of you know uh, you know tool right using off the shelf techniques so i think that will give you a very um, good understanding of the flavors of like you know what what is out there also like try to understand what you are using don't just you know look into importing those uh, libraries try to understand like you know what's going on there but i i feel like any one domain if you know or if you explore it's very easy and like not a lot of the knowledge is transferable between these domains so i would not think like it's very difficult to move between these uh, i would suggest like get the basics right get some experience and then it's very like you know you can figure out uh, where your interests lie yeah yeah i think most of the topics in research are transferable like i think most of these uh, vision topics or language topics like you tend to learn these topics in a very um, open ended or general perspective uh, domains and then you try to apply this to whatever whatever you are asked for or whatever you want to apply for but would you say the same the same kind of advices would hold for someone who is working as a software engineer at some company and he or she wants to tra- transition to an ml role because like for university students it's easy right like i can take up a course project take up a course and say that i i worked on this one but it is not very often the same for people who are already in the industry it's very hard to make a dent in their resume or in their one page uh, word document saying that yes i do have some background in machine learning engineers like do you have any advices for people who might want to transition within industry from software engineer to machine learning roles yeah i i think the easiest is probably like you know try to find opportunities uh, within your immediate teams or you know just outside your immediate teams uh, or some teams that you work with i think if you can tra- make the transition within the same company if you're already in a company i think that's the best kind of approach apart from maybe building uh, some some tools or some experiences on this side uh, i think that can help like it's easiest always to you know switch a little bit and try to understand within your own company the problems and try to contribute in some way and then uh, if you want to go full fledged and, and stuff like it becomes easier from there on so i think that's the easiest because if you're already in a software engineer role at some some place uh, it's very difficult to directly switch to a machine learning role at a different place so i would suggest like you know, making the gradual shift um uh, to 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 where you want to be yeah that makes sense yeah and that would be like that actually makes more sense even from the candidate's perspective because it's it's very um redundant if the other like the person leaves the company and tries to develop his or her own base somewhere else rather if you know the team you know the product and if you can bring particular uh 
novelty using machine learning that would actually and because i have known a lot of people like i have a friend who is working on a database team and they're they're like the existing existing methods never use any kind of machine learning approaches and one of the key things that he was trying to optimize was for i think the number of virtual machines that are being created by those platforms and he just used a very off the chart i think um if i remember like it was some uh, clustering algorithm i think it was k-means and he was just like uh summarizing this particular data to his manager and he was very like he was very intrigued because like what kind of metrics these kind of tools can tell and i think now he's transitioning to like a data scientist roles and all those kind of stuff so i think that really makes a lot of uh sense like if you you can just pick up a project and you can say read up these kind of courses and contribute to your existing team's revenue and that that creates a difference yeah, yeah, and I think there is a mutual benefit for you know you are able to explore the area that you always wanted to be. There is also a benefit for the company, right? They're yeah. getting someone, some new perspective, someone who's interested in in exploring this further. So I think, yeah, this generally like is the best fit. Uh, I would suggest. Yeah. And the other thing is uh, remaining updated to lots of research that is being published, right? Like I'm, I like to be honest, I haven't been reading much more on recommendations, but I think in general, AI field receives a lot amount of publications. I'm not sure if this is just specific to me because I got started in this field a little bit late or maybe like when it was at the uh, lower peak of its uh, boom of AI. But I feel compared to other science uh, fields, AI receives a lot, a lot of amount of publications, which also includes a lot of bad publications where people are not doing or maybe claiming something novel versus there are lots of other novel uh, contributions too. So personally, how do you, like, do you, have you figured out some kind of best, best practice that works for you to remain updated to these kind of uh, technologies that are relevant to your work? And if so, what they are? Yeah, that, I think that's a very good question. I think it's more relevant today than ever, right? Like if the field is completely booming and I think there are like 50, even if you open like archive, there are like, I think more than 50 papers every day, every day. So it's super difficult to keep track. And yeah. And it's more important to build like a good recommendation system for maybe paper, uh, like uh, scientific corpora, right? Like yep. that really serves your purpose. But yeah, like yeah. please continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think uh, uh, what I found out uh, initially, which was pretty, I mean, worked a long time was I think uh, Twitter uh, keeping updated with like some folks I know who are like, you know, in, in the field and doing good work on Twitter. Um, even like some filters on archive, like search, basically. So you can have some filters on, on the search um, for archive search so that it gives you papers exactly in your domain and so on. But I think now even that's, you know, reaching its limits. Uh, in general, uh, in, in the company, in our team, we actually have like a reading group. I think that's been pretty good. So we are like kind of democratizing uh, this finding of papers and and reading them. So every week we try to read two papers. And, um, and there is uh, one presenter who is leading the discussion and, uh, you know, other pe people also read the same paper. They try to ask questions and, and you know, there's a rotation of like these people who are uh, trying to present, right? So within our whole team, we have everyone uh, present. So like two papers per week um, and so on. So I think that has been pretty good. Like at least you get a flavor of, um, you know, what you can use in your work uh, and build on top of it. So I think that's yeah. uh, that's been a good practice in general. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I think uh, reading groups, even in my experience, like uh, uh, 
is maybe the easiest way to get some good summaries because if you build a repo with let's say five people who really you, you really understand their way of summarizing papers and how they read paper and if you have uh, a good good repo with all of them it it really multiplies your ability to read good papers and remaining updated so yeah reading groups i feel are like the most effective ones to um get to know and i think it's fun also i think because uh, i have seen this very good bias like when people read papers like they have a certain way of reading or maybe understanding summaries and maybe understanding conclusions based on their own previous preferences and that helps me because when i read the paper versus when you read the paper uh when we talk more about that particular paper it's it it brings something new to the table so yeah yeah, yeah totally yeah and one of the last questions before uh, we sign off is like, do you have, I mean, we did talk about, because I, I feel this particular question would be redundant because you already mentioned a lot of tips for uh, people who are in research, people who are in software engineer roles, and also people who are in general interested in recommendation algorithms. But I'll still keep this particular question open to see if you have any more uh, tips or advices to any young students who are in the field of computer science. Like what kind of things you would, you would advise to maybe like a young brother or uh, sisters of yours based on looking back at your career, like what kind of things you think would have helped if you had received that particular advice a little bit early in your life? Um, yeah, I think that's a, a very good question. I think um, in general, right? Like I, I think uh, one advice I always give, I think I've already talked a bit about it is, you know, focus a lot on like, quality sometimes you know doing the right thing is going to be difficult it's going to take even more efforts um you know it's, it's going to be like you feel oh that's a bit more painful than taking the easy way out right let me take the easy way out and uh, so i think doing the right thing there is a lot of value even if it is not uh, immediately realizable or immediately like you know understandable there is long term both like satisfaction on your side as well as like long-term value you can gain by doing it in the right way and understanding the whole thing. So I would say always bias towards doing the right thing, uh, understanding things deeper and, uh, you know, exploring the space because I think that's where you will pull up opportunities. Um, that's where you will like, you know, learn the most and and be at your best self. Like um, So that that's one very strong advice I give everyone. So by, by right thing, you mean like not focusing on the low-hanging fruits of a particular application or any kind of things you are learning for, but rather diving deep, even if it is redundant. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Low-hanging fruits, yeah. I mean, low-hanging fruits, I mean, yeah, if you can get it, definitely get it. But I think a lot of value will come by going deeper. Uh, you know, in general, we kind of lack <laughs> or we have a very low number of people who really go deeper. And I think that's where a lot of like innovation comes in. That's where a lot of like new ideas or even ideas of how to improve what is already built, right, that that comes in. So, yeah, that's that's what I meant. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that. I think um, with more and more people nowadays learning machine learning, it, it's becoming much more accessible nowadays. So it becomes really critical to filter out people who actually have a good knowledge because it's it's like relatively i would say like four years ago even implementing a machine learning model was kind of a skill right like yes. not a lot of people can train or maybe uh train models on gpu because like the art of gpu programming was like a challenge but with tools like tensorflow pytorch who have made it easy it's it's like now is nowadays easier than ever so i think nowadays like it becomes very challenging to stand yourself apart and in that case a very core 
understanding of these algorithms and mathematical uh, mathematical foundation for these kind of tools is becoming more important so yeah i i love that particular advice yeah but yeah with that i think those are the all all sort of questions i had for you for this particular podcast and yeah it it was very fascinating i think we covered a lot of about uh, i think video recommendations in general to facebook platform understanding how how do we design these kind of problems because that would be something most interesting like we discussed like i think people would be least interested in like what kind of algorithms but how do you design these set of problems so we we get to cover these particular things and some very nice tips from you to understanding how these roles transition to real world scenarios where where you are working at scale and um yeah some tips and advices for people who want to transition and get started off in this career so thanks thanks a lot for sharing all these advices hopefully it's it's equally insightful for people who are listening to this particular podcast and i'll be leaving a link to your uh, homepage so that people if they have any specific questions they can directly reach out to you and maybe learn more about your background like how you have been in these fields and how you have transitioned to a fantastic role so once again thanks thanks for taking a time out on sunday i really appreciate that um, and hope it was fun for you too yeah thanks a lot i think this was uh, very insightful and i'm happy to you know talk more on this thanks a lot thank you